Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. In the absolute epidemic of opioid addiction, not to mention the old standbys of like cocaine and, I don't know, alcohol, uh, people need to know that recovery is entirely possible, uh, not just for the addict, but also for the family. There are many, many, many families that are suffering alone, uh, disconnected, um, they, they, they don't know that recovery is possible for you, whether the addict gets better or not, whether the alcoholic stops drinking or not. And today's guest just speaks to that in just her story such a strong and loving way. Here's hope. And he looked at me, he said, Hope, we hired you to coordinate, not to do. He said, you, you equip people, you don't have to do it. And that was revolutionary. What is the sound of one man listening? This is Man Listening, a fresh podcast featuring the stories of strong women who bounce back. Man Listening, because every woman deserves to be heard. Hey there, I'm Stuart Watson and welcome to Man Listening. A lot of people ask me, how do, how do you like decide on who's going to be on the show? Well, in this particular instance, if you go back to uh, episode 96 in November of last year, uh, entitled Mimi Recovery from Opioid Addiction, well, today's guest is one of Mimi's best friends, one of her longest friends, and she said, got to meet this person. You really got to meet this person. And so a whole group of us, uh, most of them from, you know, the treatment and recovery uh, rehab world got together um, and I got to meet Hope and boy am I glad I did because she focuses not on uh, the person with substance use disorder, the the addict, the so-called addict, she focuses on the family. Compelling story. Here's Hope. Where were you born? I was born in Decatur, Alabama. I think my parents got married there. Is that in North? No, Fort Payne is where they got married. I know married. nothing about it. Pull that up. I know nothing about Decatur, Alabama. Okay. The only thing I know so about. So you weren't there for very long. No, I lived there for two months. And the only thing I know about Decatur, Alabama is that is where I was born. And that my, I have an older sister that was born there too, and my mother had a stillborn baby. Uh-huh. And that baby is buried there, and she's always wanted to go back to, to visit. And you won't take her? She hasn't asked me. you got to use your words, Stuart. She hasn't said, Hope, will you take me? And you haven't offered. Okay, well, I'll do that for Mother's Day. It's a little passive-aggressive yeah, yeah, thing. Yeah. I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll, give, I'll bring the guilt. I'll bring yeah, no, the shame. Yeah, that's good. No, I'm actually glad you said that. I, I should actually offer that to my mother, I think. Yeah. 
she'd she appreciate that. that. Yeah. So my grandfather had a business and he had branches in different places and one was in Alabama. So I was only there for two months and then Columbia, South Carolina for like two years and then I moved to Statesboro, Georgia. Where you grew up. Mm -hmm. What was the name on your birth certificate? Stephanie Hope Potter. So I go by my middle name. Do you like that name? Yeah. Who named you? My mom. And where did Stephanie come from? I, she said that she just liked that name, but she wanted to call me Hope, and Hope Stephanie sounded weird. Uh-huh. And Hope, what? I mean, that's aspirational. That's... Yeah. I, if you'd have been... If you'd have been a Stephanie and not a Hope, you think is that you, weird? I mean, do you think you would it would have made a difference? I hope not. I hope not. But you know, I don't remember. I remember being a senior in high school, and someone, um, a mentor of mine in like a youth group, um, commenting to me about my name, and. And like in what way? In a very positive, loving, kind way. And I don't remember the words he said, but I remember thinking that it was a special name and I was a special person. That's what I remember. Um, and that was the first time that I thought anything about it, you know. So like, one, this is actually a funny story. Okay. So when I was in high Hit school, me. I ran for, you know, I would, you know, run for class president. It's a small town, you know. Yeah. You know, slim pickings, so yeah. running for class president and stuff like that. Except for I didn't do it my senior year because your senior year, if you were class president, I had to uh, do speak at the graduation, and I didn't really want to commit to that, so I ran for vice president that year. <laughs> but anyway, my sign said, "Don't be a dope. Vote for hope." What gives you hope? Oh God, what gives me hope today or in general? Today. Today, what gives me hope is um, is a whole lot of things, but just this morning, and I shared it um, with Dan that we were talking to, that I got an email from a wife that I've been working with, and she was sharing some work that she had done. Um, her husband's an alcoholic, and she was so excited to share with me that she had her house to herself, she was taking care of herself, and she had popcorn and an ice cream cone for dinner last night, and she was so excited to share me that. That gives me hope. Um, the other thing that gives me hope are, are my sons. They're gonna be 18 and 20 this month. You can go ahead and tell me that. I don't look like I should have 18, 20. You 20. don't look. Thank you, thank you so much. At all. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, and they give me hope because of, um, of, I had a lot of years of hopelessness. I, I have experienced hopelessness. I've experienced depression and I've experienced feeling very stuck. So to see the kind of human beings that they are, that gives me hope. Um, what were they, the years of hopelessness? Were they driven by the depression? Did you have bipolar or just depression? Mm -hmm. No, I had a husband who said I was bipolar and refused my medicine, but that wasn't true. It was a uh, nice story. Yeah, it's a great story. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, he, he tried to hold that one out to then, but no. So I, um, I, I think I probably came out of the womb codependent. <laughs> So there's blessing and curses to being my type of personality. A lot of people don't know what that word means, and okay. I didn't for decades. Okay. So you want to so say what that means? I think in layman terms, which I like to speak in, is I'm okay if you're okay. Right. So I think I learned at a very young age 
that in order for me to be okay, I had to make sure everyone around me was okay. Mm -hmm. um, my sister was severely epileptic, mm -hmm. so she had grand mal seizures all the time. So I did have someone who was very sick in my home. My parents got divorced when I was young. I was in second grade, but I think it was probably not good for a couple of years. I would remember standing in between my parents. I have a, a core memory of when I was probably in first grade, getting up from, from watching Mr. Rogers or kindergarten, maybe it was kindergarten, and my parents fighting outside the window and me going to stand in between them at a very young age. So something in me at a very young age felt like I was here on earth for other people's needs and to keep everybody okay and that I didn't have needs. So that actually was really cute for a really long time um, because, you know, when you grow up in the South and you go to church and you're sweet and you're pleasing. So, and I had a grandfather, my, my parents got divorced and my mom did get remarried when I was in fifth grade and I had a wonderful stepfather. He was 18 years older than my mom and it was a very volatile, it, was, it wasn't it was a beautiful blended family story, but he loved me very, very much, and I loved him. And then I had a stepfather, I mean, a, I mean a grandfather, who my son Parrish is actually named after, and he was my bar. He was my moral compass. He was the, he was a tall, amazing human. And he um, actually spoke um, about me, and um, the way he described me was, um, hope, hope is my sweet sweet one hope is my pretty one hope is sweet and pretty now i didn't care so much about the pretty and honestly that that didn't gotta make your sister not feel well, yeah yeah that there's actually a funny story about that one but but with the sweet so something in that hung with me and um and i think i'm i hope i'm a naturally kind person but um i do think that that probably, without him ever meaning anything about it, but I would sleep across the hall from them until I was 22 years old. He died when I was 22, a week before I graduated from college. Um, and he paid for my college. He, I was the first of his grandchildren to go to four-year college. And I would sleep across the hall from them and fake sleep as an adult. I mean, I was over 18, so that I could hear my grandfather talk about me. Um, because it was so loving and kind because when I grew up in my home as a middle child my older sister was very sick with epilepsy always it was it was it was pretty traumatic I mean it was nothing for her to be at the bottom of a pool if we were at a hotel you know and someone have to save her um, falling down she was very heavily medicated she was very it was it was it was difficult and then I had a brother who started um, experimenting with drugs and alcohol around 11 years old so I was in the middle of a lot of chaos and they were getting all the a lot of attention all the attention yeah so i just you know so i really kind of played the role i didn't know these roles then but of the lost child and the family hero so i remember when my you say my sister didn't like that sue's stories i remember is um so and again remember small town slim pickings so my senior year in high school statesboro high school my only claim of statesboro fame. is not that small a town there's a major university there there. but is. go on anyway i was the homecoming queen and so um and i think i won because i was i, I hope i won based on being a kind person you know versus you know somebody also to do things pretty well i don't know so anyway, so um, with that, my mom that night, I remember I, she, she got my sister busy so that, that she, so and the way my mom responded to me winning that, and I don't even know if my mom has any recollection of this, but it was to keep Angela busy so that she didn't feel 
um, what would be the word? I don't know, jealous, I guess, or upset or whatever it may be because she was very jealous of the life I lived. Now, granted, my sister was very sick. She didn't have a very normal, but she went to the same high school I went to, but she was very sick. Fast forward to when I got engaged and married, my engagement party and my wedding, both times I got locked out of the, we shared a bathroom when I was getting ready because she was angry that I got married before her. So that was just kind of the theme with it. But I'm, I mean, I don't have resistance. So you say it. you got locked out. She locked you out. Absolutely. Like it's my engagement party. Like, yeah. Yeah. Your sister locked you out. Yes. Words are important. Here. And it's very interesting because I actually, as I'm saying this stuff out loud, like I don't even know if they remember this, you know, but I, you know, I, I remember thinking, this is a little batshit crazy, you know? Like, I kinda gotta get ready for tonight. Yeah. It's my party, it's my yeah. wedding, yeah. And did you have to say, mama? No, that was not something I ever did. I never did that. Why? Why wouldn't you say, intervene? Cause that's, the, I learned at a young age that just take care of yourself, just take, you find another bathroom. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. So you've got this culture where you're going to be mm -hmm. the fixer, the rescuer, yeah. the hero, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. To get attention, you're yeah. going to fix everybody. Uh -huh. uh, you're going to intervene. I was and good at it too, Stuart. No, I can't tell was it? No. That was it. No. You um, might have been. Tell me a story. No, so, so it's funny. So I graduated from State for high school, and then I went to Mercer University in Macon. And that is where, for me, in a lot of ways, my life started. Yeah, you know, I feel like I feel like I came alive there. Make, they're still my seven best friends today. No. You know, we um, and I was the mother hen. Yes. You know, and uh, were you Julie the social chairman, or were you? No, I was president of the pledge class, president of the sorority, the social. But there's a joke. So I actually, um, I'll get back to that. I actually. I had a high school boyfriend left. I wasn't going to date him again or go back to states for never. Like those were the things. Like I'm all. Why not? I mean, why? Because there's just there was life out there, and I was no. Ready but to I live. mean, what what was so bad about him? Nothing. He just was going to be in states for his family had businesses there. That's where he was from. He wasn't going to live anywhere else. And I was like, I got going to this podunk. Georgia yeah, I got town. to go. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Paris. Yes, absolutely. And so anyway, so I went off to college. It was great. Just thrived. And um, of course that. My freshman year in college, this is actually a funny story. I dated this one guy, I got set up for like a fall formal, you know, and um, blind date. Yeah, and I was so this is how passive I was. I was afraid to tell him I didn't like him, so I kind of fake dated him the whole entire year. Because <laughs> oh I just God. would not, yeah, this so that tells you a little bit. But then that spring, um, the very cute, um, and messy. Uh, tall, dark, handsome alcoholic asked me to something, and I was in love with him in a week. <laughs> so anyway, I dated him. So there's a funny story with all my friends now that you don't know where hope went from the end of our freshman year until the beginning of my junior year when I came back from that, like, just la-la land, love fest. You mean being off with the bad boy? Uh, yeah. Like, I mean, we were all around, but I was just, like, all in. Was, was there some drama around the bad boy was there well not at, not at first because it was fun because you know and you know you got the sweet you know i mean i literally wore pearls and bows you know what i mean like i mean this was the early 90s so you know i was in fine you was my sorority which is pink. my mother was a fine you absolutely fine you hell yeah 
Anyway, and, uh, he was a KA, so Kappa Alpha, which is kind of, you know. Old South. Old South. So, yeah, I literally was, the, he had me in one week's time doing, um, funneling beer in my pink hoop skirt, you know, at the Old South dance. And they were like, hallelujah, hope has come alive. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I wasn't, don't get me wrong. So, anyway, so that was fun for a little while. And then that wasn't fun anymore, and I felt like I had to be his mother. But anyway, it became unfun when I started mothering him. The roles shifted, you know. Like what did that look like, though? Um, it meant, you know, checking up on him and then his parents calling me to say, hey, we can't get in touch with him or whatever. I mean, and then he would, like, flunk out. Like, he would have, like, a zero <laughs> GPA. And how did that become your problem? Because that's what I did. I took care of people's problems. Mm. It just was natural. And then he didn't, that wasn't fun for him anymore. Um, yeah. I think, and then we would break up and kind of get back together, but anyway. Um, Were there like big blowouts or anything? I don't remember that because I don't have blowouts. You know, I was too nice, I think, to have blowouts. But I think there's probably a lot of like my crying and begging. I don't really remember. Probably nothing real cute, you know. Um, but that was heartbreaking for me. I, I loved him and his parents were, his dad was actually, his dad was um, the president of the Atlanta Convention and Visitors Bureau. His name's Spurgeon, Spurgeon Richardson. He just passed away, it's been about a year ago. He and his mom were the first two people to pour into me and tell me that um, I was special and that I was smart and that I could do things. His dad gave me an internship at the Convention and Visitors Bureau and I lived with them one summer in Atlanta. And he opened up my world to, you know, you're, you're you're, you're special, Have you know, you can do anything. You're smart. And I loved him. And actually, the night he was in, he, and I, uh, the night he was passed away, I got a text at like four o'clock in the morning. I didn't see it. I got up and this boyfriend, college boyfriend of mine and I, I mean, we, we, we still know each other, obviously. And he um, had texted me and said he was in the last hours with his dad. And he sent me pictures. His dad had kept my letters that I'd written him over the years. And they were in his desk drawer. And so that meant a lot to me because this was a champion. This was somebody who brought the, the Olympics to Atlanta. You know, what I mean, this, he was he was a big guy, big personality. Did that boyfriend ever get sober? He did. He got sober when he was around forty, and uh, in AA. He never went to treatment. I honestly don't know if he still is or not. Yeah. Yeah. And so, okay, that blows up. And yeah, what? that blows up. And, and then I graduate from college. I, um, I go live in Europe and uh, live in where? In, I lived in Cheltenham, England. Well, I lived in D.C. I lived in Washington D.C. And then um, told you I wasn't going back to states for her, so like I'm moving. So lived in D.C. Um, and funny story, I actually had a job. I had three job offers, and I took. The one I took was the one I shouldn't have. I'll tell you which one. But I, one of my job offers was to work in Hillary Clinton's office, and that was the summer of Monica Lewinsky. So I would have been in that, you know, how they would show the Monica Lewinsky, pick, like, of all the interns at the White House? That was the summer of 1995. And I didn't take that. Oh, and, wow. Yeah, because I was so easily swayed by people. And people were like, you can't go work for a Democrat. You need to work for a Republican. And... Um, and there was probably some cute guy that told me that, so I was like, okay, I gotta do that. I really don't even a remember. A cute Republican. Yeah, it was a great, yeah, really handsome, you know, probably had on his Brooks brother tie. And you were a fine UK. I was funny, yeah, I didn't do that. a natural extension. Yeah, and then the other one was, and I regret this too, I, I had another job offer to work in Zell Miller's office, which would have been really um, great. 
And then the third offer that I had, and I took this one, it was to work on a presidential campaign because I thought, oh, I can do that. Like, I'd be good at campaigns. So I worked on a presidential campaign for Phil Graham, who did not beat out Bob Dole. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I pretty much answered the phones at the front desk and uh, got paid nothing. And, but anyway, it was an experience. But fast forward to that, then I lived in England, um, lived in Cheltenham, which is about an hour and a half southwest, I think, of London. And I worked at a home for physically challenged adults, and I did it through a program. They would place you places. And um, I lived with two German girls and, um, and two girls from China. No one spoke English. The place smelled awful all the time because of the German food and the Chinese food, and I like lived on cereal alone. I don't know, but there would be three days. I would work four days and have three days off and I would travel all around um, uh, England, Scotland and Wales and stay in little hostels and stuff all by myself. I remember that- It's also mothering. Yeah, yeah, I was mothering. Mothering kind of work. I was, I was mothering. And I remember that was the first time in my life that I felt very, very lonely. I remember that feeling, like I was very alone and it became very obvious to me that I was, I wasn't homesick, but I felt alone. I was alone, but also too, I was okay with that. Um, and then that Christmas, my, um, my, so my grandfather had just passed away that June before when I graduated. And that Christmas, my high school boyfriend, Walt, his grandmother had passed away. And I wrote, um, and I was very close with his parents too. And his dad had slipped into a depression. It was very interesting that that happened. He was a big guy great personality and something about the loss of his mother and so I wrote them a letter and said I was sorry about that and I came home for Christmas and I was going back to live in France and we reconnected at that time and uh, I remember we would go to movies and he would come over and I remember feeling like I'd come home not home to my home but being with Walt again and it was interesting nothing romantic happened Um, I remember he asked me to go to Park City Utah skiing for New Year's and I was like, I remember flipping out. I was like, oh my God, what if he wants to kiss me? Cause I don't, you know, like, like, can we, I don't want to do that. Like, I don't want to date him. I'm going, I'm still going. I'm still got places to go. And we went and it was great. And it, he didn't try to kiss me. And it was, you know, we were friends. And I remember getting on my plane, the plane to go to France with my best friend from college, Ansley. We were going to live over there. And I looked at her and she's like, what's up? Every time I called your house, cause you know, this was still when you called house phone. She's like, you were off with Walt. What is going on? I said, Oh my God, Ansley is like, I think I'm going to marry him. And she's like, what? And I knew it then. And then we corresponded while she was, didn't say no. No, absolutely. She li- no, she didn't really know him because I kept that world very separate. I kept my college friends and we didn't overlap at all. They knew of his name, but, and then we corresponded via fax. <laughs> and this, I know it's so great. And so the sad thing is okay, now, for your kids. I'm so sad oh, about this. <laughs> and I'm so sad about this one thing. So on Valentine's Day, he sent me the most epic love letter you've ever seen in your life. And it's faded. I still have the facts, but you cannot read it. And I'm so sad about that. That you didn't photocopy it or take pictures of it. I didn't know. It. I didn't know faxes were going to fade. It's 1996. Oh, Stuart. and you can't read it. Yeah, any there's of a it. funny story about that. So we lived in, we went to a school called um, uh, the Institut de Francais, 
which we called the, the Beverly Hills School of French. So people would send people here. So like, you know, people that would send, big companies would send people to go learn, a, you know, it was like an immersion into French. And literally we're sitting like, just like this and that looking out there was the French Riviera. Oh my God. Like, and we were just like, this is crazy. Oh we're like so bad and bougie and didn't even know we were bad and bougie. And we're trying to be cool. Like we've got like, like we packed like rollerblades, you know? <laughs> we're like, we're going to rollerblade around. But, like you can walk into Nice. You can because walk. Because God knows you can't buy them over there. Yeah. So anyway, long story short. So um, we had to break into the art. The, the guy, his name was Noel. And uh, we had to break in because we knew there was a fax coming in and he wasn't there. He was out of town. And I think we climbed through the window or something. It's a crazy story to get that fax. And it was, she was like, if you don't marry, I'm going to. Wow. And anyway, she, she had a boyfriend that she didn't Do you marry. remember anything it said? Um, yes. One thing I remember it said is he said, I remember sitting in your kitchen over Christmas and how you lit up talking about Brown. And Brown was my stepdad. And I don't know why that stood out to me, but the fact that someone saw me and saw me, I think that was what it was. I think that he saw me. Because people didn't see me, I think. You know, does that make sense? It does. You yeah. felt invisible. You felt yeah, and I don't remember consciously thinking I'm invisible. I mean, I had great friends. I had great everything. But that's all I remember. And then, of course, I mean, he literally thought I was the most beautiful person on the face of this earth. I mean, I'm not being vain. I'm saying... Like, and I, so I remember a lot of that, but he, he thought I was the most special and most beautiful human. And so that was in the letter, but that particular thing about that he remembers sitting in the kitchen and us talking about Brown, because my, because he, my, he had um, Alzheimer's by that point. So walk me through the like sort of decision-making or non-decision-making <laughs> yeah. that got you to the marriage. Okay, yeah. Like, so fast forward, I'm gonna make this quick. So um, that's in the spring of 96, and Ansley is my best friend of college, his name, and she's in love with the guy that she's not gonna marry, the bad boy she didn't even go to. She misses him, she goes home. So I'm like, well, I'm not going home. Like, I'm over here, and Walt had never, he had always wanted to, to travel to Europe, his grandfather was an architect and um, was the architect for many beautiful things in Statesboro, but the most beautiful thing is the First United Methodist Church. And his dad um, and his grandfather went on a European tour um, in the 60s and went to the he went on a cathedral tour and sketched, and that's how he did that. So it was always a very interesting, he wanted to go to Europe and kind of do that. So he had this, um, he, had an opportunity and it's a funny it was a funny story hearing his dad he was like I swore his dad called me Hopi he's like Hopi I swore that day I saw Walt leave with that backpack I was like he ain't never come back and he's sure not gonna find Hopi but anyway <laughs> he did he found me and we traveled for like two weeks over there and it was great we did you know went to um, Amsterdam this is a story my now kids that's did. romantic it was it was he went to Amsterdam. Now, Walt was another bad boy. So anyway, so he comes over there, and I can't remember. Oh, he flew in to Paris. I was living down more in the south of France area. So I went up there. I met him at Charles de Gaulle Airport or whatever, and we went. And I remember his sister was so mad. So I stayed a virgin in high school. I did not have sex with him because I my biggest fear was calling my granddaddy and saying, hey, I'm pregnant. And also, too, I didn't. It's my mother's story. Right? No, I swear to God. That is why I did not have sex. Like, yeah. I, the fear of calling my granddad and saying, hey, I got married. And so I had a commitment that I would never. I, so I, the pill kind of 
Not I just didn't think it worked. I didn't think anything worked. I was the person that thought, like, if you try cocaine, you're addicted. You know, this is your brain. This is your brain on drugs, so I didn't do drugs, you yeah. know. So I believed it. I was yeah. a rule follower. Okay. And uh, so I remember his sister, who I'm very close with still, was so mad because she's like, oh, my God, you're, like, literally in Venice. You're in Amsterdam. You're just like, you didn't have sex in the most romantic Paris. I was like, well, no, because I didn't know whether or not I was going to, what was, if I was going to marry him or not. Like, at this anyway, well, Right. There's that. But anyway, the funny story about him coming over there is he talked me into going to Amsterdam and smoking weed. And you'd never smoked weed? No, I, absolutely. No, I had smoked weed. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah, I tried it in high school. I don't like it. My blood, I look like I have a lot of energy, but I have really low blood pressure. So can you imagine me on weed? Like, I'm like, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but I remember it was really high potent in weed and it, it, it wasn't a good scene. I was like very paranoid and stuff like that. So that's the last time I smoked weed. But, um, but that was very important to him, you know, he was wanting to smoke weed because he liked smoking weed or whatever. But anyway, we came back and that was the summer of the Olympics in 96. I was a public relations and marketing major. Wow. And so it was time for me to stop hopping around and go get a job. And here the world came to Georgia, yeah. to Atlanta. It did. If you call that it Georgia. It did. And I still had a very good relationship with my college boyfriend's dad. He wrote me beautiful letters of recommendation. I got a great job at a, at a PR firm. And I lived in Atlanta that year. Now, fast forward to fall, um, it was a Georgia-Florida game, big deal down in Georgia. Mm -hmm. And um, Walt had invited me to fly down to Jacksonville. That's where his sister and brother went to go to Georgia-Florida game. And that was where um, a plane flew over the game, and it said, I love you, Hope, will you marry me, Walt? Oh, my God. I thought it was a joke. This tells you who I am. I'm like, what the hell? Y'all think, like, what is happening? And then his sister, everybody's around me, and there's these obnoxious Florida fans, and he's down on one knee, got a tear in his eyes, and actually, this is the ring he gave me. Oh. And, he, and he put the ring on, and I was like. You still wear it? I I'll tell you, I just started wearing it again. He said, um. And this was my thing. We put it on. He's like, I was like, do I get to keep that? How terrible. Poor guy. Anyway. That's, that's, you actually said that? Swear to God. That's what came out of my I was like. And was that a family ring? No. 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 He, he got it. He got for it. For you. Yeah. Anyway, um, a friend of mine got engaged recently. I'm officiating a wedding soon. And she was asking me something. And I said, let me get my ring out. I want to show you how I, it's the thing in it. And so I wore it to work. This was a year ago. And she said, um why don't you wear that? And I was like, I don't know. Now I sold most of my jewelry I had to. So you so, did say yes. I did say yes. And um, and it was great and we went out and had dinner and that I lived in Atlanta and then we had to decide, are you gonna move to Atlanta, Walt? Or am I gonna move to Statesboro? We went back and forth, so we had two choices. You can. I was making $22,000 a year at a, at a public relations firm. So either he can move up to Statesboro, find a job, he was gonna go back to school to get his business degree. And um, he wanted to be a financial advisor, you know, Merrill Lynch or something. Or I could move back to Statesboro and um, we could probably have a house, you know. I mean, we could probably have, we could have a different life. We could travel. We lived in Atlanta because of the cost of living and that sort of thing. Also, too, they had a, the Aldridge owned a hardware store. They owned a um, hotel. They owned... A lot of land. They... And you're not far from Savannah. Yeah. Uh, and you would have the means if you live there. The you don't have to stay there seven yeah. days a week. You yes. can. And his go. dad offered to build us a townhouse. So he had these townhouses, and he was like, I, "You know, I'm going to finish these out. Y'all can live." It was just great. So anyway, um, came home and um, got married in Statesboro. And literally, I wish I had. I'll have to send you a picture. There's actually on the front page of the paper a few months after we got married. There's a 
picture this big of Walt and I, and it says the perfect wedding, Mr. and Mrs. Walt Aldrich. Ah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. In the paper. In the paper. They asked me if they could use my, our, one of our wedding pictures for an ad, and I was like, yeah, I don't care. And wow. then my mom called me. She said, Hope, have you seen the paper? And I said, no, ma'am, why? She said, well, there is a very, very large picture of you and Walt on the front cover. Did you know they were doing that? And I was like, well, they asked me for pictures. But anyway, it's kind of funny. I love showing it to my kids. My homecoming crown and that picture, I love to show my kids. They're not impressed. Oh. No, they are a little bit, maybe. Well, they should so be. So that was that. And we had 10 great years. Literally, literally just amazing. Just, we were married for 18, so that's going to tell you. And I remember specifically around our 11th wedding anniversary, we, one of the things we committed to do, and we always went somewhere for our wedding anniversary, even if it was just one night or two nights. And this year we went to the lodge at Sea Island, which was beautiful and amazing. And I remember when we got there, it was the open of college football. He had the ballet guy bringing up a big bottle of Crown Royal. And then we had dinner at like, you know, just amazing steak restaurant. And I remember he was so weird that night. He was on pills, and I didn't know what was going on. What and kind that, of pills? Yeah. I think that I think at that point it was opiates. He had been introduced to opiate. My brother was his drug dealer, and I didn't know this. These are things I know now. I have a brother who's an addict and alcoholic. So that was when the hopelessness came in for me because I couldn't. It was like nailing jello to a wall. I couldn't figure out what was going on. That's when some subtle gaslighting happened. So he was about 38 at that point. What did the gaslighting look like? Um, you're. Um, well, it started off with he was my brother's savior. He would take care of me. He would take care of my mom. He would take care of my, by this point, my, he, he had the financial means to do a lot of things and um, just kind of, you just be sweet and pretty and nice, hoping I'll take care of everything else out here. And so you would say, I'm concerned about the way you were acting. No, I didn't. I never confronted or, people's or behaviors. Or you would, you would say, something and he would say don't you worry about yes blah, yeah blah, blah. yeah so it started off very subtly but I without knowing it so I was trying to control my brother's abuse at this point so I was being that kind of sister and we had a his drug abuse yeah we had this beautiful historic home and it had a carriage house and a pool house and he would put my brother in one of those and I would think he was saving him from you know his things but I found out years later that actually my brother was his drug dealer. And this is, this is when Oxycontin was big, okay? So Oxycontin came around. So he was using it experimentally, not experimentally. Don't think it's gone away. Yeah, it hasn't. Not experimentally, that was not the right word. He was using it, um, not daily, but like I would, like it would be weird things. I would be like, why is your tongue so fat? Or, you know what I mean, be weird. And then um, he just started changing a little bit in personality and, um, and then, as luck would have it, um, when he was 40, both of his hips collapsed, and he had avascular necrosis, probably from a lot of alcohol abuse. And he, he was a severe asthmatic, so a lot of um, inhaler and steroids. What's the necrosis? What is that? Um, so your hips literally, you know, suck it, and it, it, it um, the bone deteriorates. It almost becomes like a so square peg in a round hole. Almost. Okay, the yeah. ball and socket. Yeah, it's okay. nerves. And so I remember at this point. So it's I, painful. Very painful. And so what I remember at this point is that we were already in marriage therapy. Um, because? Um, I remember telling the marriage counselor 
that I was a, I was scared of him. And they looked at me and they said, what are you scared of? And he was like, I don't beat her. Like, what's she want? I was scared to speak. So it started coming out, like that codependency, those things, the fact that I was here for everybody else's needs and I didn't have needs, that caught up with me. And I began getting physically ill, migraines. Um, um, the depression, emotional depression came later actually for me, but I had migraines. Um, my eyes didn't produce tears, a lot of inflammation in my body. I would get welts. It was very weird, extreme fatigue. So they thought I, at one point they had, a, I thought I had muscular um, um, sclerosis because like I would ache all the time. So I had the physical manifestations of depression. So what it was, was just years and years of self really depletion in a sense, just not just taking care of everybody else. The funny part about this is too, is I actually worked in a church so like, I mean, I was all things to everybody. And then What'd I had you do to, at the church. I was the director of children's ministries. So oh, I God. just was, yeah. So you see it. So I just, it's just all kind of unfolding. And as this is happening, you know, some of the most hollowed out people ministers. Absolutely. They've just been emptied yes. out. Yes. The best advice I got, hope you were like the pastor. He was a great, I still am very close with him. And he, um, his name's Don Adams, and he looked at me, he said, Hope, we hired you to coordinate, not to do. And um, he said, you, you equip people, you don't have to do it. And that was revolutionary for me. I was like, okay, wait a minute. So I don't have to do this, because I thought I was a human doer, not a human being. You know, I, I didn't just, so I just, and I was very good at it for a minute, and then it just all caught up. So what happened with my husband is, um, I remember being in that marriage counseling session and the counselor asked, oh, Hope, like this is, you know, hard news. How are you, you know, Walt's going to be debilitated. He's going to have to have two hip replacements, you know, not going to be able to help and do anything. And I had this aha moment. I was like, he doesn't do anything anyway. I do everything. And so I remember looking at him and I said, my concern is, is the pain medication. And he said, why are you concerned about that? I said, well, my brother's an opiate addict. And I'm very concerned about that. And he, Walt looked at me dead in the eyes. He said, I will never do to you what you've been through with your brother. And I was like, okay, okay. And you believed him. I did. Let me tell you what happened. We did left. he believe that? Well, I can tell you. We got in the car and I had a migraine. I was like, I, we drove an hour and a half because, of course, we couldn't go to counseling in town. People would see us, you know, so we they drove back. talk. Yeah, yeah. What would they think? Yeah, so we went, um, got in the car, and I said, can you drive? Because, again, I drove everywhere. He rested when we traveled. I drove. He rested, you know. But I, I did everything. I didn't know I was doing it. But anyway, and then he said, I can't drive. And I said, why? He said, because I just took some pills. So when we were in that session, that's what he said. And I remember shutting down. Now what happened when he So you didn't go No, I didn't. What no. the fuck? Yeah, I was just was, no, I, no, I was and that's when I went inward. And then he had two hip replacements. Um they were awful. He was so his his pain level could not get to a place that they could manage. Um his first hip replacement, he's screaming, yelling. They're like, "Mrs. Aldred, we cannot give him anything else. He will stop breathing." But because he had been abusing pills and I didn't know it,
They couldn't get, I mean, his baseline. And because he'd been lying to them about how much Absolutely. he'd taken. Yeah. They don't know how to calibrate. Uh, no, no. Morphine to they everything. Yeah. And he gave me, this shows, this tells you how codependent it was. This is actually a visual. He had um, a dip can. He dipped skull. And he said, I just need a dip. And I'll go sit on the toilet or whatever. I was like, you just had to heal. Like, what are you talking about? So I literally get the dip can. I open it to put the dip in his mouth. That's how sick I was. And I saw 10, um, um, 80 milligram Oxycontins in there. And I was like, oh my God. And he's like, give those to me. And so I spent the entire weekend of him screaming. All at 10. He, not then, but he was gonna, he, and, and he, so I got him and I took him out cause I figured he would overdose and stop breathing. And he screamed the whole entire weekend at me. Um, if you love me, you will go get those. They don't know what they're doing. Um, and that was the beginning of the end for me. And I shut down. I had to go through two hip replacements. He, at this point, fast forward, he had everybody convinced. Two, that, with, two with him, not yours. No, he had, yeah, he had to go back and do it. And at this point, I just shut down. Um, and there was, he had everybody convinced, you know, that I was very sick, that, um, that I was the problem, that I was, and I looked at, I, I was sick. I was getting very, I was thin, um, I was depressed, I was withdrawn, um, and I felt stuck, and that was hopelessness for me. Did y'all have kids at that point? Yes, we had two boys, Parrish and Porter, and by that point they were in elementary school, um, and that's when the real intensive gaslighting started. That's when it was, I mean, he had my mother convinced, he had, Anybody he could convince um, that. that what, I, did the, what did that sound like? Um, you're crazy. You think everybody has a drug problem because of your brother. Um, you're controlling, um, you know, just, it just progressed. And then when the pills would run out, the drinking would step up. And one of the worst things I remember having, I remember during this time, I just let him go. Like, go do, he even bought a restaurant in town. It was a crazy story, you know, which is just, the Tito's flowed much freer there. So I remember one night, the porter, my youngest, had a friend, and we had a playroom, had sofas in there, and they were sleeping down there. And he came, I remember, by this point, I don't sleep in the same room as him. You know, we're, we're, we just live together. Nothing's, it's, it's cohabitation. I'm, Can I say that yeah. only a real alcoholic will buy a restaurant in order to get vodka? <laughs> the great thing is, and also too, when you're seeing this a, may be a sign. When you're seeing if a you've psychiatrist, a, if you've ever said, bought a restaurant yeah. in order to get Tito's, yeah, he, you might be an alcoholic. And the, we were marriage counseling, and the marriage counselor said, "Well, do you want a divorce?" He was like, "Absolutely not. I love her." And he said, "Well, don't buy this restaurant because if you buy that, I begged him not to. He said, if you buy that restaurant, I will. Y'all, you might as well bring the divorce papers in when you sign the thing." And he did it anyway. But anyway, comes home because it was a big fun party place. He brings home two of his best friends and I wake up to hearing children being moved and I'm like, what are you doing? And he's carrying Porter upstairs and, and his friend and he's like, I'm putting them in our bed because I didn't sleep in our bed anymore. And he said, I was like, oh my God, what you are moving sleeping children. What are you doing? And he said, and I'm not going to name the friends names, but um, he said, they, they, um, they came, they're st sleeping here and I'm like, we have a carriage house and a pool house and a man, like we had space. And he's like, let me tell you, and he looked at me with just disgust in his eyes. He said, we took Will out because his wife is a crazy fucking bitch like you are. And this is what we're doing. And, and I will never forget it. And um, 
I heard my son have um, nightmares for a few nights about that after that. And I remember that was a moving point for me. And I looked at my son and I said, I just want you to know it's never okay for, for adults to speak to each other that way, but definitely moms and dads. And it's not okay for daddies to move sleeping children so that they can bring their, their adult friends in the house because they've been out drinking. And that was probably the first time I ever spoke up. How did it feel in your body when you did that? Great, but I still had a long road ahead of me. So fast forward, I filed for divorce three times. <laughs> you know, I kept thinking and he would. Why did it take three? I mean, because he wouldn't move. You know, the first time, the first time he moved out for a little while. Actually, the first time it was great. But I mean, why do you got to file three times? Well, because I was not strong enough to follow through. So he, the first time I filed, he actually did move out for a period of time, and it actually worked out beautifully for him because one of my friends gave him a fully furnished, really nice house because they had moved to Charleston. And he got to live there for free and only had the kids like one or two nights and it was like a free-for-all so that was pretty fun for him and then um we had did a last ditch effort and the counselor said um, i need y'all to cohabitate for me to work with y'all and i wept and he kicked out of the room he said what's going on? i said please don't make me live with him again and again i went back to i'm scared of him and he was like what are you scared of it's like i don't have a voice i can't talk like i like i'm you know um shut down so, you know, I did an intervention in there, too. I can't remember. And with the, it's also probably not women's rights central yeah. in the court system. No, it's not. It's, it's not. Probably yeah. not. But within five days of me doing an intervention, trying to get him in treatment, he had all the people turned on me, and one of the guys actually called me to do an intervention with me afterwards to say I needed to go to a psychiatric evaluation. So that was the thing. You know, it was just the theme. He could... He was very good at turning things around. But the third and final time I filed for divorce was... Um, it was after my counselor, I finally, I was in Al-Anon by this point, started working the steps. Did that help? Oh, it saved my life. So I Do you have a sponsor? Yes. Yeah. So do you, do you have fond memories of that person? Absolutely. Yeah. She's like, yeah, she's the first person that said, please don't save Do you Please mean it literally Wilson. saved your life? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Like because, you think you'd be dead. Um, I think, uh, I don't think I'd be sitting here talking to you. I think be I'd a be a nervous wreck. Yeah, You'd I was very a... physically ill. Yeah, my nervous system was shot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I would be... From trying to keep it all together. Keep it all together, yeah. You've got the boys, you've got the church, mm -hmm. you've got the, got the husband friends, off the rails, you've got the, brother, you've got the got social the status. Mom, the, oh, yeah, all the stuff. The friends, yeah, all the stuff. Yeah. So, um... I had a counselor that I was I was going I was going to um, Al-Anon, working the steps, been doing it for a few years, got stronger, doing a fear inventory changed my life. I had no idea how afraid I was of everything. Um, I stopped talking about Walt and I started talking about myself. I started doing those things like let it begin with me and what are my motives, all those things that really piss somebody off. You know? <laughs> like, what are they saying? Keep coming back, the words see if you work it. I'm like you. And for some people, detachment yeah. looks like D I V O R C. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly the how you detach. Yeah, yeah. Here's how we detach. Yeah, 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 yeah. Tell it to the law. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> so I went to a counselor and she looked at me and she said, I'll never forget it was on October 31st, um, 2014. And she looked at me and she said, What's the difference in what you're teaching the boys um, is okay and what their dad is? And I was like, What do you mean? And she said, so what you're teaching your two sons 
you know, is that, you know, you do everything and it's okay for daddy to be, because all they thought about their dad was he was sleepy and sick a lot, okay? They didn't know dad drank and took pills and stuff. They just thought he was sleepy and sick a lot. He took a lot of naps. He had a lot of stomach bugs, you know? Because you didn't want to obliterate their notion. Never. Mm -mm, no. And I, that's one thing I'm most proud of. I don't think I ever did. I'm, I'm pretty sure I didn't. I don't know. Their perception may be different, but I don't think I did. So to this day, they mm -hmm. consider this person sick, not bad. Yeah. Yeah. That yeah. is huge. Yeah. And that was when, you know, when fast forward, you know, he, that, that you're going to love this. So like a good alcoholic, I was finally going to, so I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. I was going to file for divorce January 3rd, 2015. And he ended up in the hospital with a fork. 13% chance of survival. All of his organs were shutting down. And um, he was in on feeding tubes. He was in um, ICU. And uh, that was the first time I told my kids that um, they didn't even notice he was gone for five days. That's how little he was involved. And they finally were like, where's daddy? And I said, he's in the hospital, but we can't go see him. He's in ICU. And they said, what's wrong? And I said, well, anytime you put too much of anything in your body, it can make you sick. And daddy's put too much alcohol in his body. They, How did they process? They that? said, okay. They were very detached by this point. I mean, you know, I mean, it, it, it became their norm sort of thing. But it also, when they think back on it, probably explained a lot. It did. Yeah, I think it was, I think it was good for them. And then they were like, okay. And then he, we never lived together after that. That was the only way I got him out of the house. And so. Um, did kids live with you? Mm-hmm. 100%? Yes. Yeah. And so at that point. Um, I had the fight in me and I was like, I'm not going down. Um, they need at least one healthy parent. And right now I'm the sicker of the two, even though he's in ICU. Seriously, that's how I felt. Sick in what sense? Emotionally, physically, spiritually, completely depleted. And I said, all right, I'm, all right, I'm going to fight. Let me see what I can do. And then not many classic codependents mm -mm. have that epiphany, but it took me a long time. So for anybody who listens to this, it takes, it did, didn't happen overnight. This took years. This took, this is about seven years at this point. They think he's the sick one. Mm -hmm. He's the sick one. Mm -hmm. He's the bad one. Yeah. I don't have a problem. He has mm -hmm. the problem. He yeah. is my problem. Yeah. And I lived that way for a lot of time and it kept me sicker. That, that was, that was my drug of choice. That was my drug of choice that relationship. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and him being sicker and me trying to get someone, like, do y'all see what's happening? Don't y'all see what's happening? Like, woo, everybody, everybody, and you know. And when the great love of your life, mm -hmm. your other half, mm -hmm. this epic love story yeah. becomes the thing that's gonna kill you. Kill you. It's gonna drag you mm -hmm. down. Yeah. That's when I realized that the moment that I realized my kids have to have one healthy parent here and the only thing I can change, the serenity prayer became my literally compass on everything. Change what you can, accept what you can't, change what you can, accept what you can't. And the only thing I could change was myself. And so um, that's when I didn't back down and he was shocked. Funny, that's actually not funny, but he, he did bounce out. He got out of the hospital and he, he was like a chicken. So the 13%. Mm -hmm. He bounced out, was out after 14 days, still refused to go to treatment. He had bought a lake house at this point. Was, anyway, that's a whole side. There's a lot of side stories here. Anyway, so he went out there and lived there. So he was fine. And then um, that March, February, oh, February, so my attorney said, we can't 
file, well, you can't serve a dying man. I was like, okay, well, let's wait till he's not dying, you know. And then um, a few, a couple months pass, he falls and breaks his neck and back because he falls through a board at the lake house. What's Trump. that? I don't even know. But guess what that does for you when you break your neck and back? Pain pills. Spills. So there was that. And then we were supposed to go to court in March. We couldn't because of that because he's been neck, neck brace. And I remember going to the hospital to check on him. And he's like, well, can I come? Are you going to pick me up tomorrow? I was like, you're not coming back. And I was like, are you kidding me? And I was like, no. And again, you know, you fucking bitch. You know, like, are you, that's my house. I'm like, you can't come home. And that was the first time I started doing that. Were and the then, cops ever involved? No, never. No, never. I think he knew I meant business by this point. Fast forward um, that summer, he ends up in the hospital again. We finally get the divorce proceedings, I think, kind of started. He tried, we had a guardian at Lightham involved. He, he hung his hat on. Hope is mentally ill. She is bipolar. She refuses to take her medication. The children are not safe with her. Um, she has fabricated the story. Um, she thinks everybody's an addict and alcoholic. I mean, this is literally what's happening, even though he's been in the hospital. Revoke consents. No one could get any of his... Nice story. You have to have something to back it yeah. up. And he he would have them convinced. The guardian at Lightham would meet with me, and then she'd meet with him, and he'd, she'd believe him. But anyway, it, it took care of itself. That summer, he ended up in the hospital again, lost his job with Merrill Lynch, lost his insurance. That was in July, and that... Um, same July, I got offered a job at Willingway Hospital, um, and because um, I was under his benefits, I, I couldn't. I worked, but which not. Which is treatment? It's a treatment. Yeah, center. treatment center. So that journey started. So I, um, God took care of me in so many details, and so I literally name, name some of those. In the darkest days of my life, I would go to court and fight against a narcissistic opiate addict, sweating bullets saying I was crazy. All I wanted was the kids. He, I handed him everything. I didn't ask for child support. I asked for, any, like, get, like, give me the boys. Like, I want, I need to know they're safe. You, you can see them. I want you to see them, but it's got to be supervised until I know you're going to remain sober because it just was bad. So um, I would go there, and Raymond Scott hired me, and he's a great mentor in my life, and he knew when I wasn't okay. And he would come in my office and clean me up and push me back out there. And somehow or another, I helped other families and they helped me. I don't know how I did it. I do not know how I did it. Um, uh, my house That's was sold. That's magic, by It's the way. magic. It was magic. My house was sold on the courthouse steps. Um, everything was gone. Um, you know, there was debt coming in. I didn't even know my name was tied to. He would get hospitalized. The, the verbal abuse was horrendous. I established an email account. The only way he could correspond with me was through the email account, and I gave it to a friend. You set boundaries. Yes, I set boundaries. Because if, if he texted me, I believed it. That's, I mean, I didn't get better in that way. The words still affected me. So I had a friend read the emails, and if, if it was anything she needed to know, she would say, hey, hope you want to know what time Porter's baseball game, or whatever it may be, and I would give her the schedule. But other than that, she did. I did not respond to his emotions, and he started getting you know, the kind of, he figured it out at that point, you know, because I so wasn't- did you block the text? Yeah, I blocked him. He was blocked on everything. I had set up an email and um, a friend monitored it and there was that. And then he would end up in the hospital, out of the hospital. He didn't see him a whole lot. And then fast forward till a year, he passed away in June of 2018, the year before he died. I always went to the hospital, a small town. So people would say, hey, Walt's in the hospital. But I always knew, because he would kind of, you know, I knew the cycles. Why and did you go to the hospital? Always, because I loved him and because we had kids and I supported recovery. So I always wanted to be there if uh, I couldn't pay for it. 
I couldn't do anything, but I had numbers I could share with him if he wanted them. Um, and I wanted him to know that. Phone numbers of? Uh, you know, people that could put him in contact with people. The thing. I mean, I didn't. He didn't have insurance. He had nothing. That he could he have could gotten call. recovery from yeah. a variety of ways. Yeah, yeah. People that were like, if well, ever wants help, hope, please give them my number. And he never did. Well, I, you know, I don't think so. So that year, that June of two, July of 2017, went to the hospital again. You know, he's in diapers. You know, I mean, by the, I mean, it just progressed. He's very, very sick, and he would always bounce back though. And he would say, you know, hey, what you doing here? Yeah, that would be exactly in that tone. I'd be like, well, I heard you were sick. And he's like, oh, hey, how you doing? Like it would just be like, that's how it'd be. And um, complete delusional delusion. Disconnect. Yeah, like what you doing here? Like I'm coming from willingly. And he, um, that was the first time I ever saw emotion in him. And um, I, the doctor said, you need to go to treatment. And I said, what you going to do? And he said, asked me if I went, he said, if I go to treatment, will you tell the boys that I went to work somewhere for 30 days? And I said, no, I'm not going to lie to them. I said, and also, too, they'd be really proud of you. And he said, um, I said, and also, too, where, like, where are you going to work that you don't have a phone <laughs> sort of thing, you know? And he said, uh, I said, so, you know, you know that they're about to be sitting on the front pew at the church that your grandfather built, that we got married in, that they got baptized in. For the funeral. Yeah. Burying their daddy. I told him that. And a yellow tear came down his eyes. I can see it just like it was yesterday. It was yellow. He was that jaundiced. And he looked at me and he said, but hope then they won't have to know. And I believe that's what killed Walt. Shame. Shame. Pride. Ego. Now fast forward. He bounced out of that place. He called me and said, hey, I'm staying at the Holiday Inn. Somebody would always put him up. He's like, can the boys come over and have the, got a great buffet breakfast in the pool? And I said, no. And he said, well, why not? I said, because that's weird. <laughs> I mean, so we got, that last year, it was, he wouldn't fight me anymore. That Christmas we spent together, he got sober. He went into the rooms of AA for a few months, I believe. And the way I knew it is I saw some changes in his behaviors. Um, I just shared this story yesterday, actually. And one of them, what, he had a $10 an hour job. And he bought me um, a jacket that Christmas, and it's still one of my most prized things in my closet. I love that jacket. And uh, I'd, I'd bought one when I lived in England many years before, and it was old, and he got me one and gave it to me from the boys. And then that January, I came home from work one day, and I had a bunch of wood stacked up behind my house. And I was like, where did this wood come from? I really thought, like, I bought it from the Boy Scouts or something. <laughs> like, I'm like that shot out. I'm like, oh, God, who did a... Do I owe somebody? Do I need to leave a check somewhere? You know, and um, a few—I think a couple of weeks went by, and I finally was like, "Hey, well, I, you know, we were talking every now and then." I said, "Did you did you bring firewood?" He's like, "He said, yeah, it's, I knew it's getting cold, and I noticed you didn't have any, but he didn't tell me he did that, and I still have about four pieces. I cannot burn that wood; it sits in my back, like side corner. And that was that, and then um, that." Uh, June, I got a call. He's in the hospital again. Now, by this point, he'd started methadone. I don't know why anybody would give someone as sick as him methadone that March. So when I got to the hospital that time, I knew it was not going to be a bounce back time. And I uh, and I called him. Was, hmm. Yeah, he was. It, his organs were not rever Even if they could have reversed anything, he would have been in excruciating pain. He had nowhere to live. I mean, he was practically a homeless man by this point. He had a little one-bedroom apartment. My mom was still his greatest enabler. My mom took care of him behind my back. And, um, and so it was a beautiful week, if you can make pain beautiful. And um, 
uh, his sister signed all the rights over to me. She was in Jacksonville because she's the next of kin. And um, I got him in hospice, and we have a great hospice there. And I told him, I said, uh, we're going to get you cleaned up. I said, I need the boys to come tell you goodbye. And uh, he didn't like that. And he couldn't talk much, but he cried. And I said, they got to tell you goodbye. I said, and then I'm going to get you all the morphine and benzos you want. And I said, that's something I never thought I'd say. And he grinned. And so we got him over to hospice and got him cleaned up. And um, I, I got two people with me to tell my boys. I got um, one of, both of them were best friends. We had best friends. We had lots of good friends. We still have these friends. I remained the friends with them. Walt's relationships kind of deteriorated, but one was a dad and one was a mom. And I called him and I said, I need y'all to come sit with me while I tell Paris and Porter what's going on. And I looked at him and I said, um, your dad's an alcoholic and that's why we're divorced. I never told him that because it was a story to tell and I hoped that he would find the rooms of AA and he could tell them the story. And then I said, um, and he's not gonna make it. And, and, I, and I, I need two things for y'all. I said, one is I need y'all to go tell him goodbye. I said, and the second is, is I don't want you alone. I said, you can, whoever, it doesn't have to be me. You can be with whoever you want. And then my house turned into like the most fun little frat house for a week. Their friends came. They went and told him goodbye. And the last time they saw him, his, their friends wanted to go say goodbye to Mr. Walt. You know, there were some great years with Walt. And we went in there and I hopped in the hospice bed with them. And uh, they were like, they were like, oh my God, what are you doing? There's a big bed. I said, don't worry guys. Your dad's been trying to get me back in bed with him for years. <laughs> so they loved, they laughed. And then the last thing they saw their father say, I, we, I kissed him goodbye and I told him I loved him. And he looked at me and he said, I love you. So the last things my children saw were that they're, that we laughed together and we loved together. And I'm so thankful for that. So thank, I don't, I don't, it could have happened so differently. So the ne he died. And to what do you attribute that? To what do you owe thanks for that? Oh, uh, that's God in me. Sad. I'm not that human. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's a lot of Al-Anon. That's a lot of work, a lot of thing. But that's God in me. I'm not that good of a person. How do you access that God? Oh, um, the serenity prayer all day, every day. And, um, and also to remembering the good and not the bad. So that's all I remember now. Like, I only just remember the good stuff, you know. It's, there's just so much good stuff. And we talk a lot. I actually told my son he went to the senior prom a couple weeks ago. And, of course, I gave him the lecture. You know, like, you got to be a gentleman. You have a date. Gentlemen aren't drunk and high. Got it, kid. And he's like, yes, ma'am. And then I said, okay, I'm going to break down and tell you a story. I said, so your dad, my junior prom, his senior prom, he talked me into doing some ecstasy. I said he was going to get it. Thank God he didn't get it. I said, because that would have been an epic shit show. You and your mom, your mom wanted to see, and I was like, so don't be to experiment with anything new. And he laughed, and it was, it was a fun way to bring, you know, dad into senior prom. We celebrate his birthday. His birthday is on December 2nd, so that's what we do. We celebrate, you know, his birthday. His sister and her husband and four kids, we spend every Christmas with them. And every other, they're, they're our family. And um, my kids will turn 18 and 20 this, this month. And I, am, I don't know how I've made it here. I don't know. Outside of all those miracles, you know, a friend calling me one day when she's buying a car and saying, hey, come up here, I'll, I'll co-sign your car loan because Walt wouldn't let me out of a car loan. You know what I mean? Crazy stuff. You know, um, you know, I got 
my credit score was in the 400s. My house was still on the courthouse steps. I, I would get sued for things after he died. I was left with a funeral bill. He went through millions of dollars. I don't know where it went. And I, I don't know how I do it, but, I, but we do it. And I'm most proud of, of who my sons are. They're really, really great people. And I think a lot of it is I give Walt credit for that, you know. Adversity sucks. Pain's an asshole. But I think it taught us gratitude and to love. And we really appreciate relationships in each other. And I don't know that we would talk as openly and freely as we do if that wouldn't have happened. So, but it took a long time for me to get the courage to get out. And I think I understand why women stay. And men. It's easier sometimes. And I'm in my seventh year of not living with an active alcoholic or addict. I'm in my seventh year. I think there's something about the seventh year. Congratulations. And this is the first year that I feel, I don't feel quite as exhausted. I feel like I'm kind of waking up in some way. But here's what I want to ask you. Okay. You're in a caretaking profession uh -huh. now. Uh -huh. So um, how do you... Your boys are getting out in the world. How do you take care of hope? Like, how do you figure out who hope is mm -hmm. now? Ah, that's, that's a heavy question. So, um, so one of the ways I take care of myself is I don't take on other people's stuff. I'm very careful with that. So just like someone who has alcoholism or addiction, they might need, not need to go hang out at a bar, right? So I'm actually, like when I go to church, I slip in and I slip out. I, I'm very careful about my friendships, the relationships I'm in. Um, I, um, I know that sometimes answering, because I get a lot of urgent calls, you know, but so, sometimes I realize if I let them sit in the crisis, they'll figure it out. So Their crisis doesn't have to be your crisis. Absolutely. I don't, yeah. Um, and my priority um, continues to be relational. So my priorities are, um, you know, you know, my relationship with God is of the utmost importance because I think he wants best for me. He doesn't just want a good life for me. So I'll see what that is. And then um, parish and porter are my priority, even though they're older, you know, um, what do you, you know, that sort of thing. And now they, I, I always joked and meant it when I said, as soon as I can get Porter graduated, I'm leaving Statesboro because I came back to Statesboro because what it's been, I'm so thankful I got to raise them there. I know there's eyes everywhere. I have a lot of love in that town, but also to have a lot of pain there. And so one of the ways I take care of myself now is I, like I'm here, you know, in Charlotte. I say yes to things that I haven't said yes to for a long because I, I wouldn't say I put my life on hold, but I did like in the sense of they had one healthy parent and that was my goal. You know, let me make sure things are that. So I would say the way I take care of myself now is by saying yes to things that I couldn't say yes to before. Like? Got somebody sending me out to Texas, great place out at, in the orchard. Somebody, new, new job, new, new career, yeah, new yeah, career so change. I do that. Um, I, um, I come to places like Charlotte and facilitate dinners with a whole bunch of people that I want to meet. Connection. I love connecting people. So, um, and, you know, this weekend I'll go to Athens to see my son for his birthday and my best friend. 
I just feel like I'm living for the first time. I'll be 49 in May, and I feel like I say yes, and I'm, I feel like I'm breathing for the first time. I feel like I held my breath for a long time, even though I was doing it. I just feel like I don't know how else to explain it except for just saying yes and also to being so protective of the work that I have done. My, my program of recovery and, um, and my mental health and my serenity is of the utmost importance to me because without that, I cannot show up for anyone. And I always take a Sunday afternoon nap. Always. <laughs> All my Un friends know. Unapologetically. Unapologetically. Under the covers. In the bed. Don't mess with me. A, you know, three hours, mom is unavailable. Even if I'm not sleeping. My friends know it. Everyone knows. Hope takes a Sunday siesta. Yeah. Um, I keep it real simple. I can't control people, places, or things. You know, I check my motives. I just kind of, I like to say, I try to stay in my hula hoop. And that's where I surrender to God's plan. So a prayer, I pray a lot. And I prayed it this morning because thinking about, you know, doing this with you was God help me bridge the gap between what it is you're doing and what it is you want me to do. And usually he really doesn't need a lot of help from me. Right. Things turn out. Yeah. So. Yeah. And I'm not saying Pollyanna. I'm not, a, I'm not unrealistic. So there can be hope without it being, Yeah. everything's going to be roses. Yeah, I really don't have any power yeah. much. Yeah. If we get struck by lightning today and the only thing that remind, remains is this little piece okay. of audio, what is your legacy? My boys. What do they represent? They represent um, perseverance and love and grace. I actually thought about this earlier. So I had this bracelet on. I saw this earlier. It's got grit and grace on it. Adrian Peterson gave this to me. He's a, um, he, there's two Adrian Petersons, but I've worked with him. He's a motivational speaker and he, I worked with him during the darkest years, those hopeless years. I worked with him and brought life. And I, when I was looking, I just popped it. I love this bracelet. I put it on. It's special because he gave it to me. But, but, um, but that's what they represent to me. Where do you think they got that? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I hope I played a part in it. I hope it's been by action, you know, and, and not by words. My main, my main message to them all the time is, is you just have to show up. Just show up. Can you just show up for whatever, you know? And for me, um, I, think I think they know I'll show up for them. And if that's, sometimes that's enough. Very powerful story. I'm immensely grateful to you. Oh, I like you so much, Stuart. So God bless you and thank you. I honor you and I really respect your journey. And thank you. I think you help a lot of people. That story, that pain and, and resilience help a lot of people. You know, the acronym for hope is hold on pain ends. Thanks, Hope. Hope Aldred worked at Willing Way in Statesboro, Georgia. Uh, where my birth mother worked as a nurse for a time and where she found a lot of help after my father's death from alcoholism, my biological father. And Hope Aldred now works with a, with a brand new place 
outside of Houston, Texas called The Orchard. And I met the folks that run that place. And uh, I don't know about the place, but I was tremendously impressed with them. So Hope, thank you. Thank you for sharing your story. Man Listening is a production of Unmediated LLC in cooperation with the Queen City Podcast Network and Balto Creative Media. Allison Andrews at Andrews Creative and Rachel Clapp Miller are developmental producers. Sally Higgins at Higgins and Owens tries to keep us legal. Our music is A Day at the Park by the group Pictures of the Floating World. Your announcer is Catherine Smith. That's me. Please go to our Patreon page. You'll find us at patreon.com. Look for Man Listening, one word, no spaces. We hope you'll join us by becoming a member. A small investment can raise up the conversation. If you want exclusive member merch, like a t-shirt, we can arrange that too. A huge shout out and thank you to everyone who supported Man Listening from the very beginning. Thanks so much. Don't forget to support us at Patreon. We believe one voice can change the conversation. Thanks.